Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Revolution. It's based on the idea that things are not okay the way they are now and that they must change. As I record this podcast, there are people throughout the United States basically divided over the issue of revolution, all along the spectrum, really, ranging from some who are basically content with the United States as it is. Nothing really needs to change. We're just fine. And and then there's people on the other end of the spectrum. Um, There are those who see the United States as hopelessly corrupt. Now, I would imagine that most of the listeners to this episode would not be on the extreme ends of this spectrum and probably would be a little bit more moderate. Still, my guess is that some listeners will lean more towards accepting the status quo and others will be more riled up about the need to change. This spectrum, this variation of opinion, existed within the first century as well. We could easily imagine the Roman leaders, say like Pilate, who were more on the right end of the spectrum and made it their business to maintain law and order, the status quo. There, of course, were others who felt like things needed to change and actually were willing to pay uh, for this idea with their life. Where does Jesus fall in the mix of responses? Was he a revolutionary? To approach the issue from a bit of a different perspective, uh, does Jesus believe in simply submitting to the power structures that were active in his day, or does he advocate revolution? The answer is, well, yes. As always, Jesus doesn't fit neatly into our categories. In a sense, the answer is kind of both. The text in front of us explores the nature of Jesus' revolution, how he and his people fit into the larger power structures that exist. Matthew records four interchanges. There's a common thread that runs through these exchanges. Something more is going on besides people trying to outsmart one another. They all revolve around the topic of authority and the nature of Jesus' revolution. So as I read the text, Matthew 22:15 to 46, keep your eye out for what these four interchanges contribute to our understanding of the nature of Jesus' revolution and how he responds to authority. Starting in verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, 
Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The issue of revolution is clear in the first exchange. I hope you caught it. This is a great example that shows how difficult it is uh, for Jesus to be put in a box. Jesus has called the religious leaders out for their corruption. But what about the Jewish people's common enemy? What about Rome? Aren't they worse? The Pharisees' logic seems to be something like, uh, why haven't you been spending your preaching time attacking them instead of us? Is it because you're afraid of being a real revolutionary? One of the interesting features of this account is the presence of both the Pharisees, whom the reader should expect to be anti-Rome, and the Herodians, those Jewish people who were in favor of Rome and thought the best way forward was to, well, play nice. Certainly someone who was lauded as a revolutionary, uh, as even a messiah, would not want to fund the enemy. Jesus' response, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, brilliantly places him out of the box for an expected revolutionary. On the one hand, there is a clear message of submission here. Pay your taxes. The revolution will not be a kind of military revolution, like the Revolutionary War. That's not Jesus' approach. His approach is not to fight Rome directly. But neither does he advocate capitulation. In a world where Caesar was seen as divine, Jesus' response clearly puts Caesar uh, a healthy notch lower than God. Caesar does not own the things that belong to God. 
Moreover, as he's been traveling around Galilee and now Judea, Jesus has not been amassing an army and collecting weapons. He has been preaching repentance. He has been preaching that the way we fight the power, the way we resist, is by giving to God the things that are God's. The second interchange uh, comes from the Sadducees. This is a group that does not believe in the resurrection or supernatural intervention. Uh, They only believe in the first five books uh, of Moses. They're like what we might think of today as theological liberals, whereas the Pharisees were the conservatives. They attempt to discredit the whole idea of resurrection with uh, what's called an argument reductio ad absurdum. This means uh, disproving resurrection with an extreme, absurd illustration. But Jesus simply sidesteps the trap by, by denying one of the premises. Listen, people aren't married in heaven. That's the easy answer. But then he parries with an attack of his own. The Sadducees only hold, again, to the Pentateuch scripture, so it's a wise move to not go to a passage like Daniel 12, where, revel- where uh, resurrection is clearer. But Jesus focuses on Exodus 3 and the revelation of Yahweh to Moses, not only because it's such a significant text and one that they would obviously acknowledge, but because it gets at a fundamental part of Jesus's stance on revolution. The Sadducees would have been seen, again, as capitulators with Rome, the elite who were willing to accommodate. No doubt, from their perspective, they were doing so for strategic reasons. But this is all too human of a response. Jesus' reference to Exodus 3 shows that there must be a resurrection because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It seems to me that the idea here simply cannot be that Jesus is focusing on the present tense of the word is. Abraham, at that time when Jesus was saying these things, as now, is not resurrected. At most, uh, all we can say is that he's in a kind of intermediate state with his soul in God's presence. The way Abraham is right now is a non sequitur. It doesn't matter. Uh, Instead, the idea of being someone's God means that God will protect and save that person, keep his end of the bargain with that person. For example, Isaiah 41.10 reads, Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land. And because he is their God, he hasn't given up on those promises. But they all died without inheriting the land. This implies that he must bring them back, he must resurrect them to fulfill those promises. The underlying emphasis, then, is that death does not stop God from keeping his promises, since he is the God of resurrection. This is a fundamental premise for Jesus' revolutionary agenda, and this will become clearer later as we find out that Jesus is willing to suffer because he knows about resurrection. A person might wonder how, how they could possibly succeed How can our response really only be to give ourselves to God? Um, Won't Rome kill us? How could we submit to the enemy? How can it be that the meek will inherit the earth? Impossible. But this neglects the all-important reality that death does not stop God from carrying out his kingdom plan. The next interchange is a little different. 
The other synoptic gospels portray this individual more positively, uh, recording the statement that he is not far from the kingdom of God because he answers correctly. The inclusion here fits exactly into what we have been considering so far regarding the nature of Jesus' revolution. It involves faith in the God of resurrection. It involves giving to Caesar what is Caesar. Uh, It involves truly loving God and neighbor is the point here. This sets us up for chapter 23 in which the religious leaders are presented as caring about the minutia of the law but failing in the weightier matters in justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So what kind of a revolutionary is this whose main message is to love God and our neighbor as ourself? How is that going to do any actual good? Well, it requires a spiritual perspective, one in which the real answer to the problem is not military power, but God, in which the ultimate enemy is sin. The last interchange goes back to the Pharisees, but this time Jesus is on the offense. It concerns the nature of the Messiah. All along, we've seen that the Messiah is the son of David. At least some strands of Judaism thought of the Messiah in this way, particularly as a military conqueror. Uh, That's here in this passage. Still, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, This affirms that one day Rome will be put under the Messiah's feet. It's also a subtle warning that one day even the Jewish enemies opposing the Messiah will be put under the Messiah's feet. So if Jesus really is the Messiah and you're opposing him, be afraid. But this passage directly addresses the issue of the Messiah being the Lord of David as well as the son of David. Uh, This mitigates the common view of the Messiah as a Davidic-like warrior who will chop off the heads of his enemies. No, something grander is in view. There is again a kind of pacifism of, of inaction. The Messiah will simply sit and let God take care of the subjugation. That's the kind of revolutionary that Jesus is. He's the one who sees that things need to change and isn't afraid to call out the powers that be. But he's one whose ultimate resource is spiritual. He gains the kingdom by giving to God the things that are God's and waiting until he puts all things under his feet. We started by thinking about the calls for revolutionary, the calls for revolution today. We're not going to get into that mess here today, but let me just say this. Like Jesus, Christians cannot simply accept the status quo. Like Jesus, Christians are not advocating violence. Like Jesus, the Christian response uh, cannot exclude focusing on the spiritual dynamic and the all-important command to love God with all our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash